Jiménez, we have some, some very high-level rugby players, athletes tested, and there is no correlation at all between their uh, vertical F0, which is an equivalent of the 1RM in the half squat, so let's say the, the, the overall strength capability, and their F0 in sprinting. Uh, so it means that um, it's not even correlation or causation. It's, there is no correlation in these trained people. So um, I think the overall level of strength is one piece of the puzzle. It's an indicator. But what we need to focus on and what we need to base our uh, training program and, and thinking is, first and foremost, what's happening in sprinting. In sprinting. That was sprint researcher J.B. Marin speaking on the differences in force velocity profiling of vertical and horizontal movements. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 158 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. And on the show, we have back after a three-year hiatus. I can't believe it took me this long to bring him back. J.B. Marin, he is a French world-leading researcher in the world of sprint biomechanics and forces. He is an expert on resisted sprinting, force velocity profiling, and a whole lot more. If you are interested in the finer points of sprinting, fine-tuning sprinting from a statistical perspective, looking at the ins and outs of things, crunching all the numbers behind what makes us fast at different portions of a 30-meter sprint or a 100-meter dash, JB is your go-to guy, and I'm excited to have him back. On our last pro... On our last podcast, JB went in depth into force velocity profiling, which you can do for sprinting or jumping. Uh, you, if you're familiar with the My Sprint or My Jump apps, that is a that is a prime example of how force velocity profiling is being done to see what uh, end of the spectrum athletes are on in that regards. So he talked heavily on that. He also talked about heavy sled training, which just came out a few years ago as something that was very beneficial for acceleration in athletes. And using force velocity profiling, JB and his colleagues have statistically shown why that is and specifically how heavy sleds help us to become faster accelerators and how we can really tweak that force velocity curve in a sprint. So JB is currently working to bring more clarity to that puzzle of sprint enhancement. And in the case of our episode today, not only that, but hamstring injury prevention. 
intervention. As research is quickly shedding more light on various factors in human performance, especially the sprint sector, uh, I was really excited to talk to JB about the finer points of not only where the research has come around in terms of uh, the latest on force velocity profiling and heavy sleds and resisted training and all that, but I was also very excited to talk to him about hamstring, uh, hamstring factors. We've done a lot of shows on like knees and tendons and Achilles, all those things that are really good for that anterior chain stuff that gets hurt and jumping. Been really cool episodes with like Dr. Keith Barr and Ben Patrick and Dr. Ebony Rio on all that. Hamstrings are a little different animal just because they are involved in the highest speed action in human movement, sprinting, and it's a complex puzzle. It's a really complex puzzle, as you're going to hear throughout this episode with all the research and the process of just doing research on hamstrings. It's a big project. There's a lot of debate. And JB is a guy who I'm so excited to talk to in cutting through the complexity and getting to the core facets of these things that we're honing in on in causing problems. Uh, JB as well, since he's he's JB as well as a guy who also say when we're still figuring it out, we're still here's where research needs to be done in this area and really paving that path to athletes having healthier hamstrings in their pursuit of being the best they can be. Um, So we'll be talking about that. Other things on the show, we'll be getting into ideas on correlation versus causation in interpreting statistics, such as having a really good four jump and having good top end speed or squat jump and acceleration and things like that. Uh, He's also going to chat about recent ideas on the role of feet and ankles in sprint performance. This was a fantastic episode. I always love catching up with JB, so I'm sure you guys will truly enjoy this episode. I loved recording it. Let's get on to the show. Uh, you guys have quite quite a heat wave going on over there in France right now, in the south of France. Is uh, so What's the track track culture like? Do people have to wait till later in the day to sprint, or how's things going over there? Uh, I think overall sprinters enjoy uh, hot weather because it, it feels good for them to run fast. But at some point, it's the difference between hot and too hot. Yeah, <laughs> you see yeah, what yeah. I mean? So it, you tend to have sessions early in the morning or very late in the evening. Um, indoors is not good because usually indoors is, is even warmer uh, and in track facilities here. So Really? Yeah, that's interesting. I wouldn't have necessarily expected that with the, the indoor facilities. But uh, yeah, I guess you guys are finally getting what uh, a little bit more of uh, what some other countries are, are in here. The, some of the states in the United States where the, yeah. the, the especially the three track states that have the fastest kids always and the, the warmest weather and those types of things. So, uh, but hey, I'm I'm really excited to catch up. It's been a long time. I think it was episode 15 that was the last mm. time I had you on, which is crazy. That was a really long time ago, and I'm excited to catch up with you. Uh, I know that you've been doing. A lot of really good, uh, as well as your colleagues, a lot of really good research in the res- resisted sprint world, uh, resisted sprinting. And I know that was has, was a really big thing last time we talked. But I wanted to ask you, what's what's new in resisted sprinting and resisted sprint research over the last two years or two or three years? So I guess, uh, let's say over the last two years, there's been some, some, um, some more research. But I think there's also been some more uh, consideration by coaches about what we call the the force spectrum um, and the fact that when you sprint from zero to maximum speed you cover um, a range of velocities that's really the largest range you can cover and it means that if you want to be good in 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 throughout that range of velocity you need to be able to apply some force in these very different velocity conditions so that individual spectrum can be let's say stimulated using resistances i mean it's 
Sprint is catching up with uh, the velocity-based training that is very well known in, in the gym for, for example, squat exercises, etc., etc. So that's what's new. And the, the big new thing is some methodological points uh, that we have discussed, um, how to measure uh, the force output, how to quantify the power output, and how to determine that individual spectrum. Because if you want to uh, analyze that spectrum correctly, then you need to have good methods. So, and I would say that the most of our work in this area has been published by a young guy named Matt Cross in the last two years. So uh, there has been a couple of things. So, so, so kind of like how weightlifting is set up where it's like 0.4, you know, 0.4 meters per second, point, you're in this zone, 0.6, you're in this zone, 0.8, you're in this zone, and so on and so forth. Um, are you saying it's moving into a little bit more of a spectrum across the sprint itself? Like, yeah, okay. Because... Basically, when you sprint only once, you cover the entire spectrum. But um, if you want to stay with the specificity, then you would say, okay, you want to be faster, then train to be fast and, and just sprint. This is useful if you have a low level of expertise, but you will know that at some point, just sprinting without resistance, you will plateau in performance. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you will need to deconstruct to slow down things and to analyze that spectrum more analytically. And so you will have to go down to every single part of the spectrum. Like um, I've been training for three years, five years, and I cannot sprint faster anymore. Where is my next margin of improvement? And then you have to approach things using that force velocity profile or spectrum. You see what I mean? Because at some point in every sport, specificity is good to start with but then the next steps and the next improvements will be let's say out of specificity and targeting what exactly you need so does that move beyond like i i know last time we were talking about like there's like there are some basic core terms like like f0 and the the i believe it's the drf or the the yeah. decrease of ratio of forces and things things like that like really core key or cornerstone markers uh but it seemed like it was either it was either uh, like force or velocity is there more things mm -hmm. that are related now to like different portions in the sprint like 0 to 10 10 to 20 or or how is how has the bandwidth uh, increased or the spectrum of analysis increased over the last few years so basically now I think we have basically five or six mechanical factors. And you need to remember that you can have two football players with exactly the same 30 meter time. So you might say, well, it's the same story. And in fact, this same performance comes from very different combinations of maximum force output. So that's the very beginning of the sprint, how they orient the force onto the ground. So that's what we call the ratio of force, how this decreases with uh, increasing velocity. Some players are super well orienting the force at the very first steps and then boom, this decreases very fast. For some other players, it's exactly the opposite. And so, for example, if you analyze a group of sprinters, a group of rugby players, you will have totally different stories. So then there is no group analysis anymore because if you and me, we are on the same team, there are chances that our profile is totally different on these five main factors. So maximum force, maximum power, maximum velocity, the ratio of force at the very beginning of the sprint, and how this ratio of force decreases. 
Oh, gotcha. And so, yeah, it makes, I mean, it makes sense. Like, uh, like an athlete who has like those real sharp shin angles and, and can be real low, but then when they can't get up, when they get up and sprint, they, they don't really, um, they can't really get that swing leg retraction. Franz Bosch talks about, I, I, and, and I could see how that could be different between the two. And so, uh, in terms of, uh, analysis, like I know it, like there's the my sprint and things like that, and that I've used myself. And, and so is the way that you're looking at, has that, uh, or the sequence of that app changed, uh, recently at all or incorporating some of these new values? No, because basically the method has been, has been validated against uh, force plate. But the big news is that in a few weeks, we will publish a, a new validation, like a replication of that validation, but this time using a 60 meter force plate system as the reference. So it means we validate the simple computation approach that you can have with MySprint or with um, a radar device or with uh, timing gates. But this time over a single sprint, on the magical 60-meter force plate that uh, system that uh, Ryu Nagahara has in Japan. Oh wow! So basically, nothing has changed. <clears throat> it is just that the methodology is a bit more, um, uh, let's say, supported because the validation is exactly the same output, and um, we are now reviewing some papers trying to improve uh, how things are measured. But overall, the message is exactly the same. You can compute all these macroscopic uh, let's say features of the sprint acceleration only from split times or uh, velocity time. I gotcha. So uh, with with all this uh, coming out and some obviously strength training, you mentioned that with like how we have velocity based training has kind of been something that the strength and conditioning or sports performance community has really been into and has dissected quite a bit. Uh, is there anything new that we're seeing in regards to strength training and the force production portion of the force velocity curve? Yeah, so basically here, um, the thing is, um, there's not a lot of work published on trained people as to how does strength work, I mean gym work, influence uh, sprint performance and sprint profile. There are some works, but in very low-level people, Let's say, okay, if you train maximum strength, you will sprint faster. But basically, this is usually in, in low-level people, so you cannot transfer that to trained people. And it just analyzes the sprint performance as a whole. And, and you know that this is misleading. So in trained people, uh, there is much less uh, works. The only works that we have is cross-sectional analysis, like correlations. Does jumping high correlate with uh, being fast? And uh, same thing, these correlations are more, most often very low and they don't tell about the training effect. And this is a very misleading approach is don't interpret training effects like transfer of training from correlations that are cross-sectional. You see what I mean? For example, if let's say my 1RM squat is correlated with my F0, which is in trained people, not the case. Uh, we have a 500 athletes paper published this year showing that there's no correlation in trained people between F0 in vertical and F0 in sprinting. But let's mm. say if this is correlated, it doesn't mean that if I improve one, then as a result, I will improve the other. And this is key because um, uh, there, there are some transfers between gym work and sprinting. 
uh, like uh, high amounts of force in a short contact time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. But the studies, the science here is very, very. Um, uh, there's not many studies showing this. I mean, in trained people, it's always the same. Yeah. If you train, if you train a couple of school kids and they improve their level of strength, and you assess that at the gym, yes, they will improve their sprint times. But uh, at some point, you're not dealing with uh, school kids anymore. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I it was uh, Dr. Michael Yessa said something similar a few episodes ago, where uh, like high school or scholastic athletes are you know will often benefit quite a bit for their sport for uh, from a general strength increases, but. Once they move beyond yeah. that, they need to start looking at more specific training means. And it sounds like exactly yeah. what you're saying with you know moving on to uh, resisted sprinting or selective resisted sprinting, depending on which part of the curve that you need to improve. Basically, so what you were saying uh, at the end there was the correlation does not equal causation. Like a good sprinter could have uh, uh, maybe a 400 pound squat or 500 pound squat, but that doesn't mean that like that... Yeah. Like that doesn't mean that getting a 400 pound, 500 pound squat for someone else means they're going to have the F zero in the initial acceleration that that person does. So like that's basically what you're saying with the yeah. correlation causation thing. Absolutely. This is uh, basically what in the, in that big study by Pedro Jimenez, we have some, some very high level rugby players, athletes tested, and there is no correlation at all between their uh, vertical F0, which is an equivalent of the 1RM in the half squat. So let's say the, the, the overall strength capability and their F0 in sprinting. Uh, so it means that um, it's not even correlation or causation. It's, there is no correlation in these trained people. So um, I think the overall level of strength is one piece of the puzzle. It's an indicator. But what we need to focus on and what we need to base our uh, training program and, and thinking is, first and foremost, what's happening in sprinting, in sprinting. It's the sprint FV profile. So what is the values that you have in that specific area and how can I improve them? So maybe it will be through a non-specific gym work. Maybe it will be through a sprint-specific strength work. But... Uh, the first information should be this one. I mean, jumping tests, jumping profile, jumping, whatever you name it, shouldn't be the first information we collect if we are dealing with sprint people. It seems so obvious. I'm, I'm, I think, um, you know, it's super obvious, but uh, I feel that in the training world, it's not that obvious. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, I think one of the things that we tend to do is we really generalize power. Like even the term strength and conditioning, there's a lot of generalizations that filter into two specific words or things like that. And it's always, a lot of times we just end up uh, marginalizing things down into like just force. (laughs) And, And, And you know why, you know why I think one reason for that is that it seems stupid, but it's the case. The information is easier to collect it's easier to measure some jumping variables in sprinters or in sprinting people. And it's, let's say, easier to have them jump a little bit rather than sprint a little bit. And for that single reason, in my opinion, we explain part of the misconception here. Just because if I want to know how you sprint and and what is your mechanical profile in sprinting, hey, you will have to do an all-out acceleration. And this is much more taxing for you for me, et cetera, et cetera, than having you jumping, you see? So it's part of the explanation, in my opinion. Yeah. Plus, 
um, it was difficult until very recently to, to generate some mechanical variables from a sprint, where it was easier to generate some uh, velocity, power estimates in, uh, in the gym with a bar, with you know, some linear encoders, gym aware, whatever. So we have to be careful between what's necessary to measure and what's possible to measure. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely right. It's it's extremely easy to measure something that's just basically you could stand in a square or main, or be in a small vertical space and get a get a yeah. measurement. It's it's um it's definitely a much easier yeah. process and it's almost like there's this desire we want to dig as much out as we can. If it's easy to do yeah. that, it's you know, we want to dig as much as we can out of it, but at the end of the day like you said it and that actually, I, I, I'm not sure if you had mentioned that in the last podcast or not, and I, I think good pieces of it stuck with me, but it is really, I mean, that's a huge like key or cornerstone statement that the for, the force of all things is is completely, um, there's not correlated in a jump or a sprint in high-level high athletes or yeah. trained athletes. And, I mean, I, usually, I used to take other sports examples so that people really understand. It's like, you, I'm a marathoner and you're doing some cycling tests on my physiological capabilities. What's the meaning of my cycling power, aerobic power, if I'm a marathoner? I mean, everybody will say, come on, it's not specific, blah, blah, blah. So it's exactly the same between, and, and there will be some correlations. I mean, my, my maximum aerobic power in cycling will be very likely correlated to the marathon uh, uh, power I have and to my endurance capabilities, but at some point, Damn, uh, assess what, what you need to develop if you can. And now you can in sprinting. Yeah, yeah, that's it's it's really uh, I, I think it's really interesting to see how the better our analysis and data and the ability to track those specific variables, especially in something like a sprint that is a little more complex. You know, you're not just you're not just dipping down and jumping. And granted, there's there's sure. still a lot in going on and dipping and down and jumping, but um, I, I feel like that really is allowing us to be a lot more fine-tuned in, in our process. And so one of the things that I think along with the data and, and an area of interest that I wanted to get into was sprint tech, uh, hamstring injuries, sprint technique, like what's what the latest in that is. And I think one of the big kind of topics that tends to come up, and I'm sure there's you know a lot from both camps, is like the idea of, of sprint technique and hamstring injuries versus strength training and hamstring injuries. And yeah. which side of things is a, a, a sport coaching performance professional going to approach things with? Um, but one of the things I wanted to start this hamstring conversation off first was what are we seeing with sprint technique related to hamstring injuries from the recent research? Yeah. So basically, um, the, the research is going on in that, but it's exactly the same debate. It is much easier to measure your hamstring strength I mean, you just jump on a machine and you just flex max and we measure the force. Rather than exploring and measuring and detailing your sprint technique, because to know your sprint technique, we will have to do some video analysis. We will have to analyze the data. We will have to select some steps because you will run at 10 meters per second and it's going to be really tough to. So one is much easier to quantify than the other. But... The issue in sprinting with hamstrings is that most of the injuries occur at fast speeds and most of the injuries likely occur between the swing phase and the early contact phase, okay, even if there's debate on that. So it means that what we can easily measure is a low speed, high force, 
low range of motion, totally non-specific situation, hamstring strength, whether it's on isokinetic machines or whatever. And what is really important to measure is the mechanisms of injury, which is when your hamstrings snap when you're running fast. And this is long lengths, uh, single leg exercises. It's, it's, it's super fast lengthening of the muscle tendon unit. So it's the opposite situation. So my point is, it's okay to measure the strength. And there has been some studies showing prospectively that it was related to the risk. There has been some studies showing it was not. So the literature is, you know, there's a big meta-analysis last year by Green and colleagues showing that isokinetic data will basically tell nothing. But first and foremost, we need to focus on the uh, sprint injury mechanism. Okay, how do you sprint? Maybe your hamstrings snap because you're not strong enough during the sprint. But this is where we need to go first. We don't, uh, I don't want to have indirect indicators. I need to uh, spend time and energy on getting some more direct indicators. Um, one thing has happened last year. There's been a publication in Nature showing a new technique to analyze, to estimate the muscle tension from um, wearable field devices. The technique is that they just vibrate the tendon and estimate the force. So mm. it's been validated uh, in vivo and then during running. And this added to um, kinematic analysis of the sprint technique will bring some, I think, interesting data. So we are now generating this stuff. It's a young guy named Johan Lati from Finland working on that. And there has been a couple of papers in the last two years uh, showing some uh, prospective links between how people run, some variables of that, because you know when you put some markers on someone and they sprint, you can get uh, millions of data. Okay, so if you narrow it down to the trunk position, to the pelvic position, to the side-to-side uh, -side leg motion, to the trunk angles, etc., you have some factors that are related to injuries. So I will name two. The first one is the trunk uh, lateral motion. So there has been a very recent study in Australia by a girl named Claire Kennelly, uh, showing that the future injured players in rugby tended to have a more lateral trunk flexion uh, during the swing phase. So it means if you cannot control the trunk correctly, you will have some huge movements to counterbalance and the pelvis muscles play a role and the hamstrings are pelvic attached. And the second study is by a um, Belgian team. Uh, the girl is Joke Churmans. It's a physiotherapist and she published also the fact that the muscle, the core muscle activity, so it was mainly trunk superficial muscles, glutes uh, muscles, it's clearly lower in uh, soccer players who will sustain a hamstring injury during the season when they sprint. So this is only partial evidence, of course, but it's accumulating evidence. And uh, one, one track of research that we have is around the pelvic tilt angle, like how your pelvic is tilted when you, when you enter the swing phase of the sprint. You can do a very simple test. You stand up with the, uh, the pelvic in the neutral position and you try to kick one of your legs forward and you see how high you can kick that in the air, okay? Then you voluntarily tilt your pelvis forward, which will change the hamstring position due to their attachment to the uh, ischiatic tuberosity. 
And when you do the same test, the range of motion is crazy lower, which means that you cannot kick your leg the same. And if you take that from a standing still situation to an all-out maximum velocity situation, you can imagine the range of tension that your uh, hamstring system will face with an anteriorly tilted pelvis versus a more neutral pelvis position. Same for the trunk angle. So this is functional anatomy analysis. Now what we need to do is to run some prospective studies to verify if this hypothesis, which makes sense, is actually verified by data. But to do that, you need to measure hundreds of players because only some of them, of course, will get injured. And you need to analyze their sprint pattern. And believe me, it's a lot more difficult than just having them jumping on a machine and kicking, uh, you know, you see what I mean? So it's a challenge, but it's a challenge I'm excited to, to take. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, no, it's it, sprinting is such a integrated and complex system, and it's uh, I think it's cool to see where like how that is is yeah. going to play out, especially with like you talk about like the new ideas in in uh, assessing like the tendon during running and things like that, because you feel like I mean maybe someone who's an anterior tilt, sure, but maybe they can like compensate their way around a little bit. Maybe they're not that fast, so their knee never, totally. you know, like there's probably so many totally. factors in how someone with that can totally. get around it. And so <laughs> it must it must be very clear. We see sprint mechanics, how people run as just another piece of the equation, another piece of the puzzle. So it means your puzzle is at least your age, previous injuries, flexibility, Force, of course, sprint mechanics. It's, it's a multi-component puzzle. I mean, every practitioner knows, physiotherapists, coaches, that some very strong hamstrings will be injured at the end of the season. Everyone knows that some very weak hamstrings will not be injured at the end of the season. And everything in between. You see what I mean? So it means that there's other explanations and our uh, the way I see research is we try to explain the entire phenomenon, not just 30% of the variance or 40% of the variance. You see? Because yeah. when you deal with players and we, when you follow athletes, uh, if they are super, super good on one item and they get injured, it's your job to know what went wrong. Okay? We are dealing with not group averages. We are dealing with individuals yeah certainly yeah it's and and it to me it's always just so amazing how how like it's almost like the bandwidth on what gets someone a pole and what what would have someone escape from it is so small like with and i've talked about this at some like recent um seminars or that are clinics that i've spoken at where like if if i even run just me personally like with uh and and I, I think imagine like the anecdotes too as as very helpful just because it is such a fine tuned thing over time. But like if I yes, run with course. a little with like a little um, this one David Weck is like a basically a little shaker you carry an eight ounce shaker you carry in your hand and you sprint with it. And if I run yeah. with those in my hands, like I don't get hurt. Because it's and it's weird because yeah. it's, it's almost like it takes my <laughs> conscious mind out of it or it helps the timing. Like my hands and legs can time together better. But there's been times where I have like like my groin flares up a lot, and I'll do some third fast thirties without it. And by the third or fourth yeah. sprint, my 
my groin is like feeling really bad, but if I have it, it's fine. And I'm almost like, is it because it keeps me from not overextending each stride? Like, is it turn my conscious mind off? Like, I'm always thinking of why Maybe. this is, you know. Maybe. You have situations, for example, where you see some people getting injured when they run straight forward and they move their uh, shoulder line and head to catch a pass or to see, or to see a colleague. Hmm. When they do that and they rotate a little bit the trunk, you can, you can accept the fact that they are changing something at the pelvis mm -hmm. level and that maybe this was... And the important fact is that they did not get injured before that. They got injured during this type of action. So, and the next thing is we have to be humble because maybe the reason is totally not the story that we are telling. So we, we, we really need to, to be humble and say we are just dealing with pieces of, of a puzzle. But maybe in the future years, we will, we will understand that it was totally not the case. It was a matter of coordination. It was a matter of, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, having the mind focused versus none, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I, there's a lot I, of, there's a lot of, there's too much mystery in that entire hamstring process to be assertive on boys. This is how it should be done. And this is not for sure interesting. I mean, scientifically speaking, in front of an I don't know, you cannot say I don't know, but I know that this is not the case and this is not the case. I mean, it's just I don't know until we have evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Those, it seems like the anecdotes will be awesome to help drive what to study for a period, you know, like, and, and uh, even like that, that idea of you said, you said when someone's going to catch a pass and they, they turn their head to catch it and then that's when their hamstring goes or they turn their head away from the line that they're running on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can see some, you can see some, uh, Jordan Mendigucha has a very good um, a video analysis of uh, one soccer player injury. His name is Jerry Henry. Uh, he's been almost through his entire career with, let's say, safe hamstrings. And by the end of his career, he was older, he was et cetera, et cetera. And there's one injury mechanism where he was running straight forward and then he had that kind of, you know, head movement, trunk movement, and he was injured at that time. Uh -huh. We don't know if this movement caused the injury. We just know that there was a concomitant occurrence. Okay, and, and, and we can just foster uh, thinking and, and, and research on that. Yeah, it's that's like an almost another like, uh, you know, as if it wasn't complex enough already. It's another layer to add in, uh, which is it's yeah, awesome that you're 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 on you're on your way to tackle it. I I was just thinking about like you know a linear sprint. A lot of times you'll there'll be those contractions of like the the deep neck flexors and the abdominal yeah. line together to kind of add that compression, and that's like a big part of your pattern. And then as soon as you turn your head, you lose the tension, and it almost feeds in a little bit with. Um, yeah. what you were saying on, I really, that was really interesting, like increased trunk lateral motion, um, during yeah. the sprint. I almost wonder if that would feed into like a softer ground contact, like people who had kind of like a, were, you know, weaker feet, weaker hips. Like you, you think you'd probably also see that lateral shift too, like as a manifestation yeah. and as of, of that, um, in, in a kind of a total uh, biomechanical analysis of it yeah. all. But um, it's very important to say that anatomically, the hamstrings are related to the pelvis and related via fascias to the trunk. So it means if you lean your trunk, you influence the pelvic position and thus you influence the hamstring position and tension. So, I mean, this is, you cannot uh, disagree with that. It's anatomical mm -hmm. facts. So, um, and we are a system. 
So it means that when something changes within the system, there's connections, there's anatomic connections. The pelvis, well, for, for example, issues at the hamstring on one leg must be diagnosed through the behavior of the other leg because the other leg motion influences the pelvis and thus uh, the first leg motion. So everything is interconnected. I mean, I always say to my student today, almost 2020, there's no robot able to uh, start from zero on two legs generate an acceleration and sprinting at our human speeds and then stopping, uh, slowing down and stopping. So it means it's so complex that it's very difficult to even um, modelize that and, 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 and robotize that. You see what I mean? <laughs> I like so, that. Um, yeah. I like that. That's actually really cool. Cause I mean, we see all these robots doing like backflips or like jumping over hurdles, yeah. which yeah. is awesome. But it's like to think, and I've heard your track coaches say it, and I believe it. Like it's, it's a lot harder to teach and coach acceleration than it is top end speed. Like top end speed is, I think it was um, another. It was Jerome Simeon, another uh, Frenchman who had mentioned this. Like top end speed is kind of like where the body, um, like what you have as an organism, kind of comes together in top mm -hmm. end speed and and has a you know that strong yeah. impact on. But acceleration is a lot more. There's a lot more going on there that, that there's a yeah. lot more room to, to mess up, I guess you could say, or a lot more need to, to be technically, yeah. to both, technically work on that. Both are related because by definition, my top end speed is the result of everything I've produced just before that. So it means that maybe a limiting factor of the top end speed is the way I accelerate it. Because, you know, when you pull someone, I mean, when you pull anybody, you add an horizontal force to the system everybody can run faster than, they, uh, than their normal top end speed. What does that mean? It means that if my body was able to produce that extra horizontal force output, it would be able to run faster. Okay, so it means that during my acceleration, there's something that I don't do because when a robotic system brings that additional horizontal force to me, then I'm able to sprint faster. It's like you go at altitude, and you cannot move anymore. If I give you some oxygen, you will move mm -hmm. again. It's, it's about the same. So it means that the limitation of top end speed might also be during the entire acceleration that led mm -hmm. there. You see what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah, certainly. I just, yeah, I just think that's so cool with like the robot, like it's, because like robots, once you have momentum, it, the, the, the programs are probably a lot easier. There's less factors once momentum is in the equation, like yeah. once you're already moving. But to, uh, like uh, that just blows my mind kind of just thinking about how, cause we're so amazed by what these robots are doing, you know, and, 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 and rightly sure. so, I mean, rightly yeah, so sure. anyone should be, but yeah. when we see but, one come out of the blocks, um, like you're saying, bolt, then like, yeah. <laughs> unless, unless I missed it, there's no robot doing the 40 yard dash faster than a human for now. I mean, it's maybe it's, maybe I'm wrong and someone will send me the video link, but, uh, and maybe it's going to be for next year, but I mean, it's, we've been able to achieve many, many other let's say, seemingly more difficult things in the human, uh, you know, technology advances. Not that. <laughs> yeah. And when, when it does, it's probably going to be for sure like a four-legged robot before, well before a two-legged be robot. Scary. It's going to be scary because it means we cannot escape this, this, this robot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it will really be the movie iRobot once the two-legged robot yeah. is, is accelerating faster in the 40 yards. Because otherwise, you know, maybe you, you'd have the, you could probably just run zigzag patterns away from it and, you know, it'd have to, it'd have to reaccelerate and you could beat it. But but yeah. once it, it has that 40 down, yeah, we're definitely in trouble. That might be the yeah. moment where AI takes over. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, so 
With um, yeah, I was gonna say I was gonna follow up too. You had mentioned um, that the study with core muscle activation that was it was glutes and some other like like trunk muscles that they were noticing a lower activation pattern in the the injured players. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so because because they assessed that with the surface EMG, they could only assess the surface muscles. So the surface muscle of the lower the lower back, the glutes, the glute maximus, not the glutes. Uh, some core muscles, some abdominis muscles. And the big issue is that we cannot estimate the, the real deep core muscles. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it makes sense to say that uh, it, it's going to be the same. I mean, if you, if you shake your trunk and you want to stabilize the pelvis, uh, there's uh, uh, more than 10, 20 muscles acting there if you want to stabilize it. I mean, if you do some, you know, some, uh, some skips, some exercise where I call that the anti-rotation exercises. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, you run with a with a, an Olympic bar um, up above your head. Mm -hmm. uh, these are exercises that stimulate the trunk muscles. I mean, we could say all the muscles, the core muscles that stabilize the trunk and that act against the violent rotation and lateral motion that sprinting induces. Because if you not if you cannot counteract this uh, motion, like the pelvic drop the pelvic tilt, the trunk movement, it's going to be movements, it's going to be, let's say, energy leaks. It's going to be movements uh, that will uh, counter your sprint performance. And it's going to be movement that really likely put tension on the hamstrings. Yeah, yeah, I, that's really interesting. And I like, um, yeah, as soon as you were talking about that, I was actually with like the lateral sway and the trunk muscle strength. I was thinking about, I've, I've done previous podcasts on, uh, like with David Weck on kind of pulsing and, and coiling and like how that is natural. But there's also, it makes me think of like, there is a bandwidth. And like, I think I was also thinking about the stick drills, like with the sticks on the back and the, or carrying mm -hmm. a bar. Yeah. Like I said, carrying a bar overhead. I can't think of much more that would yeah. re require a, and, and the, a bar overhead actually would allow your trunk to have a little more freedom of movement, just subtle, but not mm -hmm. a lot, but versus a bar would yeah. be on your, like right on your back would be a lot less. So I think, uh, that actually, that actually gives me some good ideas with all that. And then uh, last, yeah. a couple episodes ago, Sam Wiest, uh, a, a guy from New England, was talking about doing those drills and then like dropping the bag or the bar halfway halfway yeah. through to kind yeah. of integrate in the system. And yeah, I, I, I've always just think about how like the bandwidth of things, like what's too little, what's too much, what's what's that appropriate mm -hmm. amount. Of course. Uh, of course, but I mean, this everything here is a stimulus of that function. So what we are doing now is that we are doing some studies where we try and see how this function changes when you're running normally after having this kind of stimuli. And I mean, here we have, I, I, we don't have training recipes. We have training principles. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you respect the principle of um, adding to your trunk um, uh, movement so that you need to stabilize more, this is a good exercise in that regard. You yeah. see what I mean? So then you can invent. I mean, uh, you can invent many, many things. Running with water bags on the shoulders and uh, everything. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that too. Yeah, so you, I, that pop that idea popped in my head as well when you were mentioning like the truck <laughs> stabilization. I was like, man, yeah, that's that's all yeah, right but, there. But then a short short sight people will say, hey, we don't play soccer with water bags on the shoulder. So this is bullshit. What they need to understand is that. This is done to stimulate your pelvic control and your trunk control in sprinting. And there's no way you can stimulate that by sprinting with your normal sprint pattern. 
You know what I mean? I mean, to correct your normal sprint pattern, we have to deconstruct it and we have to simulate it non-specifically. Because if you always sprint the same, even with mm -hmm. cues, like run with more trunk stability, how can you do that? Yeah. Because <laughs> you see what I mean? Exactly. You need some exercises. You need some, some analytic exercises. Yeah. So sometimes you need to respect specificity and sometimes you need to uh, distract it. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I was reading a book. I, I don't know why I forget the name of this book. It's whatever's on my audible right now. And I think it was by Anders Ericsson or, or someone, it was one of the, you know, one a peak performance style book. And it was talking about, and I don't want to derail this, but like basically uh, cab drivers in London versus uh, bus drivers and like <laughs> the bus drivers brains, like the, the part of the, the, the cab drivers brains that's responsible for like memory and like creative solutions to driving problems is so much bigger than the bus drivers because they always are challenged. And it just makes me just reading that book just re just keeps it keeps it in my head how how easy it is to fall into one singular pattern once you have that poor pattern and not get out of it unless there's something that's like really yeah. big and apparent that's going to make you do something else like a bar yeah. over your head or a water bag or something like that. And a, yeah. a soccer player who has that sway like then has too much sway and isn't activating those trunk muscles has to have an intervention. They can't obviously what yeah. they've been doing isn't working in, in that regards. Sure. And if you, and if you even just say just sprint, it may be counterproductive because it may uh, even increase this issue, you know, so. Yeah, uh, fatigue and, and hamstring injuries. I know you've done a lot mm -hmm. of work on that and there's some interesting research in that realm. So you know, we've talked about mechanics a little bit. What are we seeing in terms of like how athletes are getting fatigued during games, uh, muscles getting fatigued? I know you mentioned a little bit already with the weaker muscles in general um, or how, yeah. how different like force velocity characteristics are dropping off. Uh, what do we know about fatigue and hamstring issues? Yeah, not not enough clearly. Uh, so we know that we know that the epidemiology is a bit different because it's there is a more injuries in fatigue situations like end of the halftime, end of the games, end of the season somehow. So clearly, uh, it plays a role. Now, uh, we have some data on how the muscles fatigue after sprint stimulus, like after a sprint-specific stimulus. And we have not many studies, but we are doing some on how, do you, how, do your, how does your pattern change when you repeat sprints and when you get sprint-specific fatigue. Because maybe the pattern changes in a less safer way, like more trunk uh, flexion, more trunk bending, more uh, anterior pelvic tilt, etc., etc. more difficulties handling that pelvic trunk motion. But for now, there's a very, very few uh, well-done studies uh, checking this. For example, we, there is a study where we assessed how does the force velocity profile change in elite rugby sevens when they repeat sprints. So of course, their, their maximum velocity uh, capability decreases, their maximum power decreases, the performance decreases, but that's, that's obvious. And we've seen that their ability to orient the force forward is really decreasing a lot. Mm. I mean, the most impacted factor in fatigue conditions is not much the total force output of the system, but much more the way this force is oriented to the ground, onto the ground. Mm. So it means, okay, you're a bit um, weaker, meaning that you produce less force, but this less force is applied in a very, very inefficient way. So how does that relate to hamstring risk? We totally don't know. That's what we are exploring. But then again, remember, 
uh, every time you want to have a prospective link with injury, you need to you need three years because you need to collect data on many, many, many athletes that will get injured, mm -hmm. on many athletes that will not, and you need to statistically control for every other possible confounding factor. So it's a mess. <laughs> yes. But it's it's just it's just just it's three years of research. So it means and we are about to end this kind of three years of research cycle. So but definitely yes, there's something in the fatigue slash injury uh link. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, and again, the, the more you talk about it, the more I, I just totally appreciate the work you're doing trying to un I unpack this. It's like, it's almost like there's, uh, you know, I imagine like, you know, 100 researchers in a, in a room. Who wants to deal with ham the hamstring injury equation? It's real complex. And you raise your hand. It's like, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll take it. Um, that's, that's awesome. Uh, so you were saying basically it's more like the, the more so than the force. It's like the, the ratio of forces or like the DRF or those. those yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It means you apply the force less horizontally right from the first step, and then step after step, you you uh, verticalize your force production onto the ground. So it means you're you produce less force and you're less mechanically efficient. So this this explains the the, the loss of performance. My hunch is that uh, maybe it's also uh, to do with the foot and and, and ankle muscles because uh, you're not able to push forward as you were before in non-fatigue conditions. So maybe it has to do with the way you push onto the ground. Because obviously this is clear. It's been, we have done two studies uh, from low level to elite people. It's pretty clear. When you're fatigued, you push vertically. When you accelerate, well, more vertically. Interesting. So you have less acceleration. And then in the end, you have less maximum velocity. It's, it's back to the, to the earlier discussion. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because I, I, I always... I, I always am interested in the biomechanical overlay and, and or, or or the the kinematics of it all like like and you were saying like or or specific strength uh, related to different body parts like you were saying yeah. the feet like it does make sense to me like if the shin angle because right like if you if the DRF is getting worse if you mm -hmm. if you have a bad ratio of forces the shin angle is probably higher like you're hitting with a more vertical yeah. shin which is instantly more hamstring length and stress right and so possibly. Yes. Uh, yeah. It may, you may also have a different shin angle because of your hip angle. All things equal. You see what I mean? And it, you, you also may have a more vertical shin angle because your foot cannot dorsiflex anymore as before. Because if your foot cannot dorsiflex properly and you want to touch the ground, you have to have a more, you know, um, a more knee extended uh, or knee flexory approach. You yeah. see? So, so it, it may be related to that. Now, Think that you're standing on one leg, not moving, and you need to push your body forward onto the ground. What will you do with the leg extended? You will have a hip, ex a hip extension, and you will have that foot transferring that hip extension, and you bounce forward. Now, what does change if you do that with a more vertically oriented uh, push? You see what I mean? So we need to go and, and dig deeper into that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And and from my understanding of the whole equation too, like when the uh, this is this is just my experience with like a good sprint with good shin angles and like the knee kind of dropping forward is there's a lot more glutes in that sprint, like and as soon as yeah. it becomes more of an extension, a vertical extension type pattern and acceleration, it's a lot. You you kind of take the glutes out of it, the equation, and 
maybe yeah it's maybe it's partly with the glutes yes yeah i mean maybe that has part of it to, or just however it gets fatigued and however the body comp yeah there's probably so many things uh, but i yeah, like sure. i like what you ben- mentioned about the feet as well and uh, i know last time on the show we were talking about mm-hmm. the the feet a lot and i was just wondering if um over the you know since we talked last i've seen you post a few videos on foot training and some yeah. things about foot related research are we seeing anything interesting in last years on the foot ankle stiffness uh injury yeah. and performance yeah so we, we've done a study with ryu nagahara it's a it's a correlation based study so we have to be very careful with that but basically the study was very nice because he took some sprinters and he had them doing some squat jumps some rebound jumps and some ankle jumps ankle jump is uh, some rebounds with only the ankle moving you you lock the knee and you lock the mm-hmm. hips and you rebound and then so it's a very let's say poor approach it's i'm an author of that paper and i totally acknowledge that but the poor approach is that we correlated the performance to different uh, step velocities within the sprint and the highest correlations were for the squat jump with the early steps and not after that so it means that the squat jump performance was not related to the fast speed motion velocity and it was exactly the opposite for the ankle jump the high correlation between the ankle jump performance stiffness and running velocity was only for high velocities. So it means that with this correlation approach, we can say, okay, this factor is more related to the early sprint performance. This factor is more related to the last part of the sprint. So then uh, there has been some studies around foot intrinsic muscles. So it was not uh, sprint related studies, but studies that show that basically the foot intrinsic muscles are active during gait and they act to help the foot arch uh, transmit the tension and transmit the the energy to pull the body forward. You see what I mean? To help that Mm. uh, wingless mechanism. So what we are now excited to discover is that uh, because these muscles are active in human gait, it's very likely that they are also active in the sprinting gait. I mean, there's no reason uh, for them not to play a role. So we want to dig deeper into that role. There has been some studies training the foot muscles and seeing some macroscopic improvements in jumping, change of direction and sprinting. But again, we need to uh, dig deeper into what biomechanically biomechanically changed after this kind of training and what muscles were actually uh, trained and stimulated. So there are some macroscopic bases and we need to dig deeper into the mechanisms and into more, let's say, microscopic uh, studies. So this is basically a challenge that we will now tackle at my lab with uh, with some new uh, new guys coming. So definitely we, we will have some data by the end of this year. And it's always the same. We start with performance. Then we go to the mechanical determinants, the key performance indicators. Then we go to the muscles or, you know, groups of muscles involved. And then we go to the training and we see if training this improves and we go up the ladder, improves the muscle function, the mechanics, and then the performance. You see? Because what we know, what we need is to improve performance. But once you've said that, you need to dig a bit deeper into what caused the performance. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, I'm interested myself to see, like you mentioned, like where the biomechanics, uh, how the biomechanics change with the, mm. with the training of the feet. I think that'll be really cool yeah. when that work comes out. Yeah, and believe me, we will actually train the feet and the ankles because we will, we're going to burn them down. I mean, we will stimulate that mm-hmm. because it's, 
when I do that in workshops, um, usually the guys two days after uh, have really, really big pain in the muscles within the foot and in the deep leg muscles. So there's really good ways to very strongly stimulate these uh, muscles. They are in our everyday life, except for barefoot people or whatever, they are like anesthetized. Mm -hmm. They are not stimulated enough. But during sport activities like CODs at full speed or jumps or landings, they, they, they need to be active. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. It's a, it's a real critical portion of performance. I, I was going to ask you quickly too, the first study you mentioned or the first bit about the feet, uh, with like the, there's the Japanese study and like the hopping yeah. and the, or trying to, you said trying to extrapolate some of those things out to running, like, mm-hmm. like yeah. what, what, can you go into detail a little bit more on that? Yeah. So it means that this correlation, uh, between a non-specific test and a performance. And I said at the very beginning that this was a limited approach, but still it's an information. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says that basically the qualities associated with the squat jump performance will help you in the very early phases of sprinting. Mm-hmm. So it means like full extension, etc. And then the the most um, the highest correlation we found is with the ankle jump rebound performance. So it means what you need at full speed is very short contact time, super high levels of force, and you need to rebound the ground correctly, and you need to you know. Uh, have some short contact time, high force uh, capabilities. But, and this is, this is what you express when you do this ankle rebound jump. This is a very demanding jump. And the cool thing now today is that during that jump, we can measure the system stif- stiffness, like the, the overall leg stiffness. Mm. If you have a force plate, you can narrow down to the, the specific ankle stiffness. And hopefully we will have some analysis of the foot muscles. Uh, in in these uh, activities, but yeah. people need to remember there's no way you can reach a high force short contact time uh, differently from uh, full speed sprinting. There's no exercise where you will go through that 100 milliseconds contact time and and uh, and high high body uh, high vertical loads. Yeah, so it's another thing where correlation may not equal causation. I mean, it probably is in lower level or more untrained people. It probably could produce more effect, but the higher up you get, you can't just ankle hop your way to a 998 or something. Yeah, but again, again, in that case, it's because we cannot measure what we want to measure Mm -hmm. during the full speed phase. So we we always go back to the same discussion. We use indirect indicators because we don't have direct measurements. Mm. But as soon as we have direct measurements, we should drop any indirect indicators. Today, it's very difficult for me to read some studies where we talk about uh, squat jump or we talk about jumping tests, and then we discuss sprinters' performance, you know, because it's, uh, there's always this uh, lack of, of connection. But I agree, it's, it's difficult to measure this because you need a full, uh, a full uh, track of uh, force plates and, and etc. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I was saying that's cool. I'm glad you mentioned that side too. It's, it's, uh, related to what Hank Kreinhoff was saying, uh, about th- two or three years ago on the podcast. And it's cool to see research with that as well. Um, uh, so, mm-hmm. so yeah, but that, Hey JB, that's all the questions I had. I think we, um, we're, we're cool. right at the end. So we, we timed it perfectly. I, but, uh, all right. <laughs> I, as, as, as last time I learned a ton, man. And thanks for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks. Uh, it was great for me to, to read the part of your book. It was, uh, I really like the, the practical side of the book. And um, I mean, many, many exercises within the book, 
will be used in research. I mean, to see if we can improve this or that. You see, so appreciate that. I really appreciate that, JV. Excellent. It was a pleasure to talk. All right, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. Appreciate appreciate your listenership as we unfold this giant athletic puzzle and piece by piece with world experts like JB. Uh, you heard JB mention my book at the end as well, Speed Strength. It is out. It is on Just Fly Sports. It is on Amazon. So I'd encourage you to check out the reviews on either site. It was a pleasure writing it. And he has had, again, a profound effect on my own development as a coach and writer. So uh, with that being said, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. Again, I would love to get up to 200 uh, ratings for this show on iTunes by the new year. And if you want to be a part in making that happen, I would totally appreciate it. Last but not least, our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. Check out their site, shop at their store. I own the Freelap Timing System, and it is awesome. So if you want to uh, take it to the next level in timing your own athletes, I would definitely recommend that and the other fine things that they have available at their site. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.